Welcome to everybody. It's very cozy in here. Um, There's empty seats up here. Yeah, if people want to come right here around the fire, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, Gather around, children. <laughs> we have lots of water. I've never been more, better hydrated in my life. <laughs> the session's about creating space for stories, but like this festival seems like creating a space for drinking water. <laughs> been offered more bottles of water than I ever had in my life. So there's a soccer game I hear tell on. I'm wearing uh, oh, the US flag. Okay. <laughs> not until 1 o'clock. It's not until 1 o'clock. Oh, okay. <laughs> so how no. many, just, how many uh, here are like involved with story, storytelling in any way, or story nerds? Oh, okay. well, that explains it. How many people have heard of the moth? How many people have heard of Cowbird and Jonathan Harris's other stuff? Okay, so we're going to explain. You'll, you'll, you will uh, be happy about it when you know about it. So I, uh, uh, I'm a story guy. I, I, I think back to a time when my ex-wife's father, he was a psychiatrist. I'd come back from a trip to South America doing documentaries, and he said, and I was trying to say, I said, I'll never be able to explain the, you know, the experience I had, and he said, well, did it ever occur to you that all of life is fundamentally unshared experience? Ah, oh, that's a grim idea. <laughs> and I think in some ways I've kind of dedicated my life to proving that maybe that's not true, uh, that, we can, uh, that we can make spaces uh, to share our experience and learn from each other and create empathy and more understanding, less fear. And uh, Cowbird and the Moth, I think, fundamentally uh, do that kind of work. We're going to be talking today about making space for such stories, you know. And I, I mean, these are personal stories, but the, our best stories, the most important, the most beautiful, uh, the riskiest, maybe. <clears throat> and uh, uh, I mean, part of what we want to talk about is why do we care about personal stories, what function do they serve beyond entertainment? We know that storytelling is like ancient, uh, and it's even a defining quality of being human. I think we're living now in a golden age of story, in a way. Uh, there's an increasing absence of gatekeepers. People have access to one another. Uh, when, I, when I came into public radio, I'm a public radio guy, there were very few open doors to be able to, for the average person to get their story out into the world. And public radio was actually at that time sort of a, a, a magnet and a portal for that. And my original belief was, you know, we, we should all be sharing our stories and figuring out how to get around uh, gatekeepers. But now, you know, everybody can share the story of what they had for breakfast, you know. And uh, so, we have to figure out like to what you know how to get the important stories out there and the ones that matter. And storytelling has been co-opted really as a kind of buzzword by corporations, by advertisers, wanting to tell their stories, wanting us to be implicated in telling the story of a, of a given product. And really, it's become a kind of euphemism for selling. Uh, so does that cheapen story? Uh, and where do we fit in that kind of an ecology? So these are two of the most intriguing storytellers I know. Uh, I, I know them both. I, I have a website that we run called Transom, transom.org, and it gives you all the tools to tell your own stories, particularly in public radio. But 
in lots of ways. And we have people write manifestos, and both Catherine and Jonathan wrote manifestos for Transom recently, both really inspiring. I suggest you go uh, listen to them. Uh, they're amazing storytellers, both of them, but they're incredible listeners. Uh, and those qualities often don't go together. I mean, maybe they rarely go together. Uh, Catherine uh, is the artistic director of The Moth. She's worked in television. She's uh, directed uh, plays. Uh, she edited The Moth book. Uh, she's uh, interviewed fabulous people. She coaches stories from the most famous people in the world to, to uh, pickpockets on the street. I mean, the, the range of... Uh, stories at the moth is really remarkable. I will also say that somewhere in a hidden bio it says about Catherine she is a semi-accomplished fire performer. Um, she directed the New York City portion of Burning Man's Festival Fire Enclave for three years coordinating a 70-person fire show in front of 50,000 people. So that's... Uh, <laughs> is, that, is that why you're wearing a red Jonathan is a, a, a unique and brilliant talent in web storytelling and in kind of and is a painter and a diarist and uh, a technologist. Uh, he had a you know the Museum of Modern Art commissioned a uh, exhibition from him when he was like twelve or so. You know, uh, and uh, I urge you to go experience his work, the range of stuff he's done on the web, some of which you'll see tonight. Uh, is really remarkable. Number27.org is, is the place to go. Uh, and he'll show you some of Cowbird, which I think is a really great model for the kind of facilitation he's done on the web. So I want to let them both talk a little bit about themselves, how they became you know, involved with other people's stories, why they feel other people's stories are important, and maybe just demo a little bit, each of you, about the moth and Cowbird. Does that make sense? Why don't you start there? Sure. Well, I mean, I was working in television and film and kind of not really wanting to be there and not, sh not sure what I wanted to do next. And somebody brought me to The Moth, which has existed in New York City for about three years then, this is in 2000. And I was just immediately completely struck, fell in love, like went home, changed after that first show. Because there was something about it. It was so stripped down and so pure. And the way the, the connection between the crowd and the person telling the story, I'd never seen anything like it. It was the complete opposite. I was at the time considering taking a job at MTV where everything was like flash, flash, you know, insanity. And I was like, no, this is what we should be doing. And so a couple of years later, I was lucky enough to come work with them off. And um, can you take one step back because yeah. most people don't know what you want? Yeah, we will. You, I think oh, yeah. that's a good idea. Do you want to play a little teeny bit? Yeah. Uh, so the moth is um, true stories told live. We um, we do shows all around the country. We're, our flagship series is our main stage. We invite five people about 40 times a year to come tell a first-person true story from their life on stage in front of a live audience. So we record these shows and then we turn into a radio show produced by Jay. So should we show just like that little bit? Yeah, of like there's the, one tonight, by the way, at the yeah, Jerome Hotel. Yeah, Jerome. Uh, with who are the yeah. roster is really great of storytellers, famous yeah. people, regular people. I applied for a green card, a huge amount of paperwork, no idea how complicated it is, sent the thing off, um, uh, waited a number of months, came back, and I was rejected. <laughs> and I thought, how come I'm rejected? I'm a knight, I've got a Nobel Prize, and I'm going to 
Rockefeller University, and they reject me for a green card. I know Homeland Security has high standards, but I mean, this did seem more than a little ridiculous. The lady scanning me uh, decided, or discovered in fact, that it was a boy. Then she said that my son had statistically a very large head. I looked across at my husband, and I swear, for the first time, I noticed his statistically large head. <laughs> and it finally hits me that I am in the home of an honest-to-God clansman, and I am a black woman. And so I sat there naked and completely covered in animal blood, um, with flies kind of gathering as they will when you're naked and covered in animal blood. I said, well, if the president wants to see me, he can walk his presidential ass right back to this room and ask me himself. <laughs> well, about 60 seconds later, the presidential ass showed up. <laughs> said, pause it there. Yeah. The moth is It's, it's, it's sort of everywhere in the world now. It's in bars. It's, uh, it started in the living room. It actually started on the front porch in Georgia. George Dawes Green, who founded it, and then turned it over. And it's expanded. We have a public radio show, a podcast. We have slams, which are, you know, put your name in a hat and, and tell a story, like yeah, open, open mic. Open mic storytelling competitions, yeah. And then curated, subtly directed shows like you'll see tonight. Yes. Yeah, George, our founder, grew up on the island off the coast of Georgia, and he and his friends would sit around and sort of famously his friend Wanda Buller's porch, and they would drink whiskey and tell stories. And when he got to New York City, it was like you know, the height of the dot-com boom and craziness. And he felt like everybody was just speaking, like nobody was actually wanted to hear anybody else talk. People were just like waiting for one person to finish so they could say something, and everyone was speaking in sound bites. He was like, this is crazy. And so he decided to bring all of his friends to his home um, and did this, like, what he called a moth in his living room and, and invited five people to tell stories. And it was such, I mean, if George were here, he would tell you it was a total bomb. But somehow there was something in it that everybody was like, there's something here. And they moved it to a bar, and that was 17 years ago. So. And the name comes from, as George says, sitting on the porch in Georgia, drinking, facilitated by bourbon to a great degree. To a great degree. Uh, <laughs> and the screens bellied out and the moths fluttering through and uh, banging against the stories in the late hours. He so, friends would call themselves the moths because of this, yes. Jonathan. Sure, so um, my path has been a little bit different. Um, I started off when I was a kid being really into um, comic books, and then as I became a teenager, I got really into oil painting and keeping sketchbooks. I kept really elaborate diaries of my life with like watercolors and plants and ticket stubs and dead insects and things like that. Um, I ended up studying computer science in college, which was a strange new thing for me at the time. Um, and then once I had this new skill set, I became really curious about how to use computer science as an art-making medium. Um, this was back in uh, the late 1990s, and the internet was just sort of blossoming, and I saw all of these humans producing all of this data all around the world, and I thought that that data could be used as a really interesting raw material for art-making. So I started making a series of projects that kind of looked at masses of data and tried to find the stories hiding in that data. Uh, and so my storytelling came, I guess, more from the macro than from the micro. And a lot of the projects I've made on the internet have been about like harvesting lots of data and um, showing the stories hiding in it. And then I ended up um, doing a lot of projects that uh, involved like really intense real-world experiences. Like I would go out and 
with the family of the Nucat Eskimos during their whale hunt and take a photo every five minutes, and then more frequently when my heartbeat got fast uh, for 10 days. <laughs> so it was sort of like trying to behave as a computer would myself. Um, and then I started um, building a tool that other people could use to tell their stories, and um, that's uh, this project called Cowbird, which I'll just give you a quick spin through. Uh, so Cowbird is basically a, a public library for life experiences. If you could imagine a Wikipedia that's all people's life experiences, that's kind of what Cowbird is. And there's around uh, 80,000 stories that people have posted on this over the last few years. And the stories primarily consist of uh, photograph and sound and text. And uh, all of those elements are optional. And then every time you post a story on Cowbird, it gets connected to, to other stories in the library. So for instance, we can like open up um, this woman here, which is a story from an Iranian woman, and it can show you other, you know, other stories mentioning silence, other stories by her, other stories mentioning fear, uh, and then you can go and see, you know, other people talking about silence in their own ways. Um, and you can search for very specific types of stories. So if you want to see stories mentioning silence uh, involving women, maybe women in their 30s, uh, maybe in women in their 30s who also happen to be cat persons uh, or daughters or dreamers in a certain place. So it's, it's kind of this like card catalog, Dewey Decimal System approach to human storytelling, where each of the stories themselves are very beautiful things. They stand on their own. But then collectively, these meta-narratives begin to emerge, which is more like the stories of the whole human species that we're all, we're all part of. So I'll show you a Calvert story or two a little bit later in the session, but that's just a quick intro to, um, to the system and, and what it looks like. And, Let, let me let's talk a little bit about the qualities of story or the quality of story. Like, what do you <clears throat> what do you look for? What excites you now? I mean, we're we're, we're beleaguered by story in a way uh, online, particularly. But what what still keeps you excited about personal story? Um, do you want to take this? Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> uh, I mean, to me, I've always viewed. Um, you know, I, I look at stories at different scales, I guess. The, there are the kind of meta-stories, which I work with a lot, but then there are also the individual stories, like Cliff the Moth is so great at. And to me, when it comes to individual stories, they're wonderful containers for teachable moments or for uh, little insights of wisdom that other people might be able to use to wake up to their own lives a little bit more. So uh, I, I think of them as these containers. Um, Bob Dylan used to say that he, uh, he saw songs as being poems with legs, meaning that um, a poem is not something anyone would read anymore, but uh, if you put it to music, this is something that can walk around and travel in the world. And I think nowadays when you have a really great story and you <coughs> encapsulate it in an online video or in some shareable nugget, that's like a thing with wings and it can really travel out into the world. So I, I've always looked for that like nugget of insight, which I think of as like a teachable moment, and I think most great stories have that. I mean, I think we live in a world increasingly where people don't talk to each other. I was just thinking of Sherry Turkle, who wrote you know, um, Alone Together. She's an MIT professor. I think her latest thing, she, she's actually done research and discovering that people under 30 have a phobia of talking on the phone, like that they only, this text generation. You know, we, we seem to communicate with each other more than ever through Facebook, through Twitter, all of these things. We're constantly connected, and yet to me, we are not connected in the ways that are so fundamental to be human, and so that is what still excites me about it. I mean, that the moth with stories, I mean, what we're always looking for, we, we say it's a little bit of a high bar, but we always say that we're looking for you know, the biggest stories in people's lives. Like, the stories, we sometimes will say to people, though it's a little daunting sometimes, 
we're looking for the story about how you became you. So we always look for stories where there's some moment of change. I mean, not to be too like after school special of what I learned and wrapped up in a bow because you know. But the best stories usually involve something interesting that happens, and as a result, the person sees things differently. And so that and that never stops being interesting to me, because especially if you get like, I mean, like some of the stories that we've had just in the last year. You know, we did Doctor Saving Mother Teresa's life. I mean, amazing stuff. It also can be the smallest story. You know, some a young girl who. You know, discovers that her mother is pregnant, the baby that her mother's pregnant with is not actually her father's, and how that changes how she sees her father in this beautiful way. And so it doesn't, you don't have to be saving to Mother Teresa to tell a great mom story. And that excites me, how that range can be equally exciting. How do we, you know, uh, I wonder how people recognize their own stories. I think one of the hallmarks of both of the, the work that you guys do is that it's invitational in a way. It's yes. saying to you, come join this. You, it's open, the doors are wide open. Uh, you can participate. And I think the challenge is you're watching them off or sitting on a camera. It's like, what would I say? What, what are my mm -hmm. stories? You know, what do I, what, and how do you suggest people like identify their own narratives? Like what makes... Uh, and, and you both have, you know, you, you come up, have, I don't know how many a day of cowbirds that show up. You have, we have a moth pitch line, anybody can call. What are the things you're looking for? I mean, I, I always think of that process as, as frame making. And the moth, you, you know, you guys seem to use the frame of like, you know, you're on a stage, you have a certain amount of time, there's a certain theme, those are constraints that you give people, they probably help a lot. Um, with Cowbird, we do a few different things, like we have something called seeds, which are basically storytelling prompts that people can scrap. So a recent seed was like, write a letter to your 18-year-old self and include a photo of you at that age. Um, and so people are sending all of these like messages back into their own past, saying like, if only I had known that then. Um, and so any of those things can help. Um, but actually, all technologies are frames in different ways. I mean, even if you think of a lot of the popular technological tools that we all use nowadays, things like Twitter, Instagram, um, Vine, Facebook, all of these things have different constraints that define what type of self-expression happens there. And when you're designing a platform or a tool, you have to deal with this tyranny of templates, which is how I think about it, which is that you can design a template which is, is terrific for soliciting a certain type of expression, but then with time, the type of expression that happens through that template will become increasingly homogenous because of the nature of the template. And this is something that every th every tool will struggle with. I think the moth maybe struggles with this. Oh, we Cowboy definitely do. This. Yeah. Um, like Calvert has become this place for like very kind of ponderous, sentimental stories about like oh the past. And like we could use a lot more funny, for instance. But there's something about that particular alchemy that doesn't really uh, constitute humor. Um, and I wonder if there's similar corollaries at the moth. Like, oh, one more story like that, and I'm going to shoot myself. Okay. <laughs> 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 this year. We got, we got this where we just got really dark and really heavy. But we are always looking for these really big stories. But there was this period where, I mean, this is maybe like a terrible thing to say, but we're like, we need to have 12 months that go by in which a baby does not die at the moth. Like, it was just <laughs> <laughs> so intense. Oh, no. One of those signs, like, days since baby died. <laughs> <laughs> like, there was one show, I think, that we did in San Francisco that Maggie directed, she's Maggie's deal, uh, who, and where, like, somebody died in every single story. And that's been one of our, insanely, this is when we're casting, we're like, we try not to have someone die in more than two stories. Like there's just like little kind of filters that you can put up for yourself. But yeah, we can. So we've actually recently been trying to find more funny stories and more romps because it's funny. We started out at like the moth was much more about that kind of like funny 
And then we, we, I think organizations kind of grow. And we went through a period where there was just maybe too many performers, too many comedians. Too, and then we wanted, we never want to go down that route where it feels too rehearsed. And so then we were like, no, like let's like push people to go deeper. But then like maybe, you know, I mean, you, you want a couple stories like that in every show. And you want every story to be meaningful to the storyteller. Yeah. But I think that we, we've recently been like, okay, we want more romps. So this so. is an interesting question I'd like to ask you, actually. I mean, I know, um, so one thing I didn't know is that the moth does a lot of coaching on the stories. Yeah. And this was like cat out of the bag at one point, I think, <laughs> when that became public. Yeah. And like on Calvary, we don't do that. So there's a lot of stuff. Like Jay was saying, oh, a lot of the Calvary stories are great, but I wish I could have just edited that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I totally agree. But that's a really interesting question because you, on the one hand, you just said that um, you'd like the moth to stay away from performers. But on the other hand, you're helping the storytellers become more like performers. Yeah. Um, and, and I know that, like, I'm sure we all have this experience that, like, all of us have our go-to stories. Like, first date, whip them out. You know, here we go. Yeah. Like, here's the thing I know I'll get a laugh. This one will get a sigh. And we all have these stories. And there's something about us that I think makes us feel like frauds when we tell those stories because we know we're just pre pressing autoplay. Um, as opposed to like a genuine interaction with somebody that's happening in the moment where you're saying things that have never occurred to you before. And I think somehow the other person knows when they're the recipient of something fresh like that. Um, and so what is the right balance between those two things? Um, it's not quite a conversation, nor is it quite a performance. It's like a story. So what is that? Well, I think that's a really good question. And for us, like, I mean, one of the when people sometimes say to me, like, when you first get someone on the phone, you don't know what story they're going to tell, what do you say to them? And I usually will ask, say, if the person feels really lost, I'll say, that, what are the stories that your friends ask you to repeat to their friends over dinner? Like, what are your kind of greatest hits? Because usually within that, there's something fundamental about them. But then if you can take that nugget, because often it's something very anecdotal, like a crazy car crash, like something that happened. And then like if you sit and ask the person questions about it, it will turn out that there's something about that. But the reason they tell it over and over because there's something about it that really says something about them, even if that's not the way they normally tell the story. And so to, so to pull that out of them, like that's I think probably one of the great the things that when what we do with the coaching works well, mm -hmm. is that we can do that, like to pull out like maybe adapt or like help them connect dots that maybe they haven't connected before. Just because as an outsider you can see it better. And then the story which maybe they have told in some other form multiple times becomes very fresh for them on stage, telling because they're telling it in a very new way. So um, it's interesting. It's, so it's that idea that like each of us has a finite number of like uh, super <laughs> yeah. potent um, seeds, and we need to figure out what those are and sprout them. Is that kind of how you see it? Um, I don't know. I mean, I do think there's some. That, I do think that people, a lot of us have like a handful of stories that we um, most connect with. But I think that if you get somebody in the room and really talk to them, you'd be amazed at how many stories most people have. I mean, our motto used to be like everyone has a story. Yeah, this moth sign-off used to be have a story worthy week, and you know there's we got some into trouble with that, you know, because like the, we played Anthony, you know, after Anthony Griffith's story about his daughter dying, people were like, Which have a story. To, where, where, are you saying you want my child? We got all this hate mail, and like, you know, we have to like, yeah, but well, yeah. But, but there's an old saw that stories happen to the people who can tell them. Do some people, do you think, are they just natural-born uh, constructors of nar the narrative of their own life, that they see themselves as characters in the story of their own lives? I think so, but some of the people who aren't like that have the best stories. Good. And that's a lot of what our job is, is to try to find those people and convince them that they should come up on stage, too. Amen.
Well, talk a little bit about, I think one way to figure out how to tell good stories or how to, what you need to tap into to make someone pay attention in, in an age when attention is short. Uh, it, it, describe the, the, the mistakes, the things that people do that just don't work, that people persist in thinking do, you know, about their own personal stories. I mean, I think an obvious one is going on for too long. Uh, like, uh, I think most stories have this kind of moment of clarity in them. And, like, the place this is really apparent, I don't know if you guys read Raymond Carver at all. He's a, one of my favorite writers. But in all of his short stories, there's always, like, a moment where you're like, ah, that's the reason he wrote this short story. It's like whether it's a man standing in front of his house with a hook trying to t take a Polaroid photo of him on the roof. Like, that image is like, okay, that's the thing that the whole story was built around. So I think once you've found what that seed is, you like build the minimal amount of scaffolding around it uh, to make it deliverable, um, but then try to get rid of more craft. I think that's one thing. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing we see is with people, especially like at the slams, will come out. We, well, we run into this space too, where somebody's not quite ready to tell the story, because um, they haven't processed what happened yet. Um, my, one of my favorite people is Nadia Boltz-Weber. She's actually a Lutheran minister in Denver, and she likes to say that she tries to preach from her scars, not from her wounds. And we lately, we've sort of co-opted this, and we say that you should tell stories from your scars, not from your wounds. And so, and like the trick, of course, is like, how can you tell if it's scarred over? And sometimes it just barely is. You know, we used to have a rule that um, you couldn't tell a story about a death for 10 years and a divorce five, although psychiatrists later told me it should be the reverse. <laughs> but we found out, but we've actually found lately that that's not as true as you would think. Like someone like Tig Notaro, do you guys know Tig? She's famous for having walked out on stage in LA and said I was diagnosed with breast cancer this morning and, and like just tell, and it was unbelievable. Whereas somebody else might never be able to tell that story. You know, they might never get to the point where they could construct a story around it that would be meaningful to an audience. And so like, that's a tricky thing for us, is as soon as we can get into it with a person, it'll just ultimately end up that they think that they're, they processed it, but that the story can't quite land, like you can't find the landing point because they are, they have, they, they're still struggling with the material. Well, let's play <coughs> Anthony Griffith, since okay. we're talking about <laughs> scars and wounds and children dying. Yeah. <laughs> this was actually recorded here in Aspen in 2003. By the time I get the official call for my second tonight show, my daughter my daughter was admitted to the hospital. Um, if you don't know about cancer, when it comes back it comes back hard. It's like beating up a gangbanger for the first time and then it's coming back and he's coming back meaner and stronger and he's coming with his friends. So in order to compensate for that you have to raise the chemo and you have to raise the medicine and you have to raise the radiation which is difficult for an adult. An adult but she was only two. He was still wounded, I mean, and, and made it through the story. It's one of the most powerful moth stories ever. But I mean, I would argue that it, he wasn't scarred by that. I, would, I feel like he was, but it was like just so barely. Like so, but he was like right on the edge. Um, and I, one of the things, I think it's much easier to watch a story in video actually, because when you listen to the audio, 
probably because Anthony has Parkinson's and his voice shakes a little, and so it can seem like he, and so the audio in some ways is harder to hear. Like when you watch his face, I think you can see that he is in control of the story, but if just barely, I mean, it happened 10 years before, a lot of time had gone by, and Anthony really wanted to tell the story. Like nobody in the comedy world who was a comedian knew that this had happened to him, and it was here at the Aspen Comedy Festival that he told it, and, um, but I think it was, Definitely, like, like that was right on the edge. But you know what's interesting is that is our most watched YouTube clip. One point, more than 1.5 million people have watched that video on YouTube. And I think it's because people ultimately, even if it is a little on edge, want to connect with that and want to you know, be a part of somebody who's actually telling something so genuine from his heart. I mean, he's, he's also, I mean, he's the most, one of the most hilarious comedians you'll ever see. But, you know, but he, he really wanted to take this on. Talk about this. Uh, one thing about the moth is that you have this, you know, you're not allowed to have notes. And uh, so people are, and they're telling things often that they've never told publicly before. Yes. Uh, and so there's a feeling of a high wire act, you know, because you, know, you, you can just lose your place, if nothing else, not to mention lose your composure and every other thing. Uh, but this balance between someone like Anthony, who's very skilled at a public presentation, you know, I mean, he's a raconteur in a way, yeah. but the quality of vulnerability, which I think is one of the most essential to these, uh, this kind of storytelling, that people put themselves at risk in some way. Maybe you can both talk about that. Yeah, I mean, um, like on Calvert, we found that vulnerability is actually like the currency, which is a very strange thing, because on most of the internet, the currency is like, how cool you can seem to other people. Um, and, um, and for whatever set of reasons, like that hasn't been the case. Maybe I'll play a Calvert story now. Um, yeah. And this is actually a story that's fun to play because this guy uh, who authored this story that I want to show is named Whitney Jones. And he uh, went through Transom, where Jay works. and We have a school that we, where we teach story up in Cape Cod, where I live. And Whitney came through there. And uh, now he works at the Moth. <laughs> uh, so you see, it's all like a big incestuous storybook. You know. uh, uh, but but anyway, Whitney was a, a member of the Mormon Church um, throughout his whole youth, and he married quite young. And then he decided to like leave that whole life behind. He divorced. He left the Mormon Church, and he moved to New York City with no money, no job, nothing. Um, and one of the first. Uh, storytelling calls that we made on Calvert was for people to tell a story about their first love. And uh, we launched it on Valentine's Day a couple years ago. And uh, Whitney posted this story about his first love, um, called First Love and 27 Other Firsts. So, yeah. Here's the story of my first love. I don't usually tell it all at once because it's a really long story. But I will try to condense the 13 years down a little bit. This is a list of firsts that happened to me over that time in chronological order. First crush, first date, first time telling someone I like her, first unrequited like, first time persisting anyway, first kiss, first epistolary romance, first girlfriend, first love, first time buying a ring, first time asking someone to marry me, first time getting married. First time getting walked in on by a cleaning lady in the honeymoon suite only various stages of undress. First time having sex. First apartment together. First vacation together. First time failing at Valentine's Day. First fight. First anniversary. Second time failing at Valentine's Day. First signs of trouble. 
first difficult conversation, first marriage counseling session, first time losing hope that things would ever get better, first time deciding to leave, first time breaking someone's heart, first separation, first divorce. Um, so in a way this is kind of like uh, the prototypical story within Calvert and you can see it's very vulnerable. I, I think like when I was designing Calvert, I, um, I often think of technologies as a kind of medicine, um, a very large scale medicine. Uh, and I think a lot of the technologies we use nowadays have a lot of the qualities that drugs or medicine have. They can be highly addictive, uh, they can change our behavior, uh, they can be administered to many people at once. Um, and they can be used for good outcomes or for bad outcomes. And I think when Calvert came along, I really saw the world as a place that was, the internet world as a place that was becoming very superficial. Um, we were expressing ourselves through these mediums that were being um, washed away in a torrent of novelty a few seconds after a post was made. There was a whole torrent of things um, burying that post. Uh, people were increasingly trying to promote themselves as opposed to engage in self-reflection. And I really wanted Calvary to be a medicine for all that, a place that was a safe place, that people could come and be very vulnerable, where they could tell the kind of stories that would still resonate for 50 years or for 100 years. Um, and I think every moment in time has its dynamic and has its necessary medicine. And I think as history evolves and as time passes, the necessary medicines change. And now that storytelling has become so, so common, I wonder if a new medicine is necessary now. Like maybe stories are not the, best, the medicine that are, not, that are needed right now in the world. Maybe we've kind of swallowed that medicine and we're like, okay, we're good on the whole story thing. <laughs> something new. And it's interesting, like I've actually been um, studying a lot of um, like Zen philosophy over the last couple of years. And uh, in, in that universe, stories are actually, in a way, part of the problem because they're part of what keeps us tethered to the stories we tell ourselves about our egos and the cycle of suffering and relief and all of this stuff um, and the stories that we tell specifically about our own lives are the most addictive ones because they're, uh, they're us and they're, we're the hero. Um, so I, I've just been starting to wonder like what is the right role for stories? Is, is there, is there um, something beyond storytelling and what might that look like? So um, anyway, so I wonder like what would be the appropriate medicine now? I'm not sure. <laughs> Well, that idea of hero is interesting in that you know, sort of any writing on story generally revolves around the hero's journey in some way. But I think the Moth and Calvert are, it, it, turn that upside down. And really, I stories agree, about actually. heroes don't work. You know, George, I mean, our founder, always talks about like the way like the, the best storytellers in some ways make themselves the butt of their own jokes. Like that, you know, it, it's part of that vulnerability is admitting, like, to, you know, the best stories are often about our mistakes. <laughs> And um, about the time that we tripped up and, you know, maybe we ultimately pulled it off, but maybe not. And you know, cause I always find that the moth is like, if it's a story about you having some great triumph, we don't care unless at the beginning of a story somewhere we're with you when you fall flat on your face. So, because um, like we can all relate to that. We all connect in with that. The time you know, we tripped over our own feet and caught ourselves unconscious on the sidewalk. Maybe that just happened to me, but yeah, I people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like people, like the, all, the, all the stupid things that we do, they connect us and so, and there is something beautiful about like, that it's a triumph that can come after. Mm -hmm. Studs Terkel is one of the war country's greatest story yeah. gatherers and listeners and is one of my mentors. And, uh, and he, in summing up so much about life, would say, oh, the frailties. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but I think the Malden Cowbird kind of 
create a, a happy, safe, even fun environment uh, to share the frailties. And as you were saying, like in a time when we're promoting ourselves as heroes, or that so much of a web and uh, that kind of narrative experience is to say, look at me. I mean, everything is look at me now. It's like your parents are watching. You want your parents to watch all the time while you jump really high. Um, but uh, but you guys create this space for the frailties. Well, another unofficial moth motto is you either have a good time or you have a good story. So. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine said, uh, what you lose in dignity, you make up for an anecdote. <laughs> Talk about, I like this, you know, talking about getting people to participate in this kind of an exercise or a context that you've created with boundaries like the moth and cowbird do. The, what are they, five stages of encouraging people to come out and share stories in these created spaces? Yeah, this is, it's kind of like a theory of online community building that I've been thinking about over the last few years, um, having tried that a few different times. Um, and I've noticed that a lot of online communities have a series of stages that they pass through in terms of enticing people to participate. Um, and what's interesting about these stages is that they have to happen in this specific order. Uh, the first stage is, uh, is access, which is giving people access. So this is the classic, like, we're in private beta, give us your email and we'll let you use it. That's the first stage, is giving people access. Uh, the next stage after that is, um, uh, is attention. Uh, so now you have a bunch of users, but you spend a lot of time giving specific attention to specific great users, and they feel like really good about that, so they want to keep working. Um, then the third one after attention um, is, uh, is fame. So within the community, you promote them as being the best uh, Twitter user, the best uh, storyteller, the best photographer, and fame becomes a motivator then. And then finally, the fourth one is, uh, is fortune, and that's just obviously giving people money for doing stuff. But what's interesting about this uh, series of stages is that each stage uh, destroys the effect of all the previous stages. So once you introduce money into a system, none of the previous three will work anymore. Once you introduce attention into a system, just giving people access won't work anymore. Um, so it's sort of like these stepping stones of online community building. Yeah. I don't know if that would uh, map to the I was thinking about whether there's an analogy, like how you, well, or maybe it starts with the front porch, and that, you know, does it, does it grow that way? Does, you, you see the moths, either the encouragement of a single story or storytellers following a kind of a curve. Yeah, I, mean, de I definitely feel like one of the things that we love is that people in the community, like who listen to the podcast, get more excited about our regulars who might not be like the most famous writers or whatever than they do sometimes about the more famous people. Like we were in Australia actually sitting down talking about doing a show at the um, um, Opera House, and they were like, and we were talking about maybe getting Malcolm Gladwell, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, but do you think you can get Ed Gavigan? And Ed Gavin is someone who started, started out at our slams. He has, tells a series of stories that have become somewhat infamous about being stabbed and left for dead by this gang in New York City. And we were so, we went home to our hotel room that night and we're like, our work here is done. Like if the, so first, if the heads of the Sydney Opera House are more excited about Ed Gavigan than they are about Malcolm Gladwell, then somehow, you know. Do you want to play Ed's first slam? We can play story? a little bit of Ed, sure. yeah. first scar I ever got was actually um, two scars. And I was uh, about six years old, 
teaching my little buddy next door how to golf. And he, I stood back and I, I coached him on the back swing and the follow through. He wailed back and hit me in the head and came around. <laughs> and the, the nine iron took a chunk out of the back right quarter of my scalp. I healed a palm-sized flap of skin and hair. And on the on the back swing, it hit me on this side, and two giant flaps of skin blew off my skull. Yes. His verbs are good. Yep. He's a good one. Um, that's a rare, funny story for Ed. This is involve terrible tragedy. Well, maybe we get. I, I want to take questions in yeah. a second, but maybe we talk. You know, the other thing Ed does whenever he tells a story, there's a, there's a therapeutic effect on him. I mean, he happens oh, to yeah. be very uh, convincing to an audience. But there's another element of story, which is that you know when I did this series, this I believe we had a hundred thousand people write essays. This is on public radio, and a lot. Look, a couple hundred made it to air. But so many people found it so personally meaningful to sit down and take the time and kind of construct that uh, disciplined 500-word statement of a personal credo. And it had meaning in people's weddings and funerals and in families and in workplaces, you know. So how about the impact on the teller, aside from audience and people loving it, the therapeutic or just personal impact of storytelling uh, to the teller? Yeah. Well, I think that people, um, and one thing, every time an ad story goes on the air, he will receive these hundreds of emails from people out in the world. And it's crazy because Ed's email, you have to really work to find it. Like, it's not the first click of Google, it's like the eighth click of Google. And yet people will track him down and write to him. And I think that has been so meaningful for him. I guess I can speak to Ed because he's become a dear friend of mine. But he's somebody who, like, I think in some ways, like a lot of people I've met who've had really traumatic things happen to them have a walk around with this fear that they're never really going to get over what happened and that this thing that happened is going to define them. And so I think that as many of Ed's stories which have to do with um, overcoming to some degree PTSD and some of this stuff, him being able to connect with other people who've been through this has really helped him feel less alone. So I think he went around feeling very alone with what happened to him for years and years and then walking to the moth told the story and all of a sudden has, you know. And so it takes what's inside and puts it out of you. Absolutely. Yeah. I and mean, then having and I think other people hear him and I think there's like hope in it for people, which before we do questions, can you? I want to talk about the idea you introduced at the beginning, this idea of meta-stories and, and the ways that we can maybe gather stories that we, when we don't even know we're telling them. And maybe a little I Feel Fine or something like sure, that. Sure, yeah. So um, Calvert is actually like just one little thing I do, I'm doing on the side. But my, my normal work over the years has been more like large uh, database storytelling. So this is a project called We Feel Fine from a few years ago, which uh, finds sentences on the internet every three minutes or so that contain the phrases I feel or I am feeling. So it basically gets people talking about their emotions in public. And um, each of these dots represents a different one of those sentences. So the brighter ones are more happy sentences. I want everyone to feel they can contribute to these creations to help them become personal to you and the ones you love. Uh, I think I just needed a week where I could come home from my shirt and tie job and not feel obligated to jump immediately onto something else. 
and there's around 40 or 50 million of these that have been collected over the last few years. Um, and then this interface allows you to scan through these stories to pull out different meta-narratives. So this is showing individual quote-unquote stories, which in this case is just a single sentence. It's more like a tweet, basically. Uh, but then you can see ones that also contain photographs, um, where the blog post had a photo, and then we create these uh, montage compositions out of them. Uh, I feel like when you're waiting, you become trapped in a moment of nothingness. Uh, and then there's this whole statistical component where you can see all the people who feel better, all the people who feel good, all the people who feel bad, gender breakdowns, age breakdowns, weather breakdowns, uh, location breakdowns. You can see statistically improbable feelings right now, the world feeling bored at four times the normal level. Um, you can see these large jelly blobs of um, nouns of, of feelings uh, based on their commonality, and then you can search for really specific people like you know, women feeling uh, nauseous or natural in their 40s in the rain in a certain country. <laughs> <laughs> so these are the things that are possible now. Like, like there's this other le level of storytelling that's possible in the world, which is really the story of the human species. And I think that's something that's actually becoming very real. Like we're all part of that. We're, you know, we're like cells in a body um, living our individual lives, but at the same time affecting the health of a larger organism, which is our species or maybe even the earth. That way, uh, and I think it's really interesting to ask, like, what are the stories of that thing? Um, what is it like when that thing has a scar? Uh, what does it look like when that thing is wounded? Like, what is humor for that thing? Um, and these are questions that we couldn't really ask, and certainly not answer until the last few years. And now, through the internet, we're able to. So this is a topic that's really interesting to me, uh, and I don't think it uh, negates the importance of the individual story at all, because those things are still little autonomous universes. But there's this other larger universe which encapsulates all of them. Well, what I like is the, kin the kinship between these two things. The single person sitting in a room like this telling a, you know, a, a true experience from their lives, and then this remarkable meta story of stories. And the fact that you're, I feel like you share values and have kinship yes. uh, working in such opposite frameworks. So, you know, I mean, it's the mission and the value that's important. Let's take questions. Okay. Well, first of all, what's the website for that? Because I have to look at it. This yeah. one here is yeah. it's called wefeelfine.org. We feel fine. Mm -hmm. If you go to number27.org, you can find a link to you know the whale hunt and the lesbian porn and the, everything that Jonathan has done. It's remarkable, <laughs> and the interfaces are so artful you'll be astonished. Yeah, the, the graphics. Well, my question, if I can ask it, the other one, Catherine, you and I were talking briefly yesterday, and. <clears throat> You were drawing distinctions in your experience, your vast experience, between how men and women present stories and, and that sort of thing. I, could you expand on that? I think other people would be interested in it. It was, it was quite an insight. Oh, well, we were just talking about how we really struggle to get women telling stories. And I think I was saying to you, this is the truth, that like a guy will pitch us 30 stories and we'll reject all of them and he'll come back and pitch us 30 more and a woman will pitch us three. And will say, that was totally great, just like tweak this one thing and get back to us and then soon we'll just never hear from them again. Like there's there's something about that men can be quite aggressive and so we've had to really we're a staff of almost all women. There's twenty of us and eighteen of us are women. And so um, we have had to really aggressively go in the world and try to recruit women because it's really important for us to those voices to be heard. And I feel like it has really turned around 
in the last few years where, I mean, like five years ago, it was like one of the biggest challenges of my job was trying to get enough women on our stage. And I feel like there has been a shift. But I think that the more women who tell stories, the more women see them and think, I could tell a story. And it's like, you know, so. So the same yeah, thing with a, diversity, you know, we try to make sure that everybody's not like, people who want to tell stories of the moth generally are men between the ages of 30 and 50 who are white, like with all due respect. <laughs> well, might you recruit more if you have more men on your staff? Yeah. <laughs> and we actually have to work on that. Um, my question, first of all, thank you, you guys are amazing. Uh, when you talk about the hero's journey, I always think of that as sort of a patriarchal myth. And a lot of the um, success and things like that in our communities are viewed from a masculine paradigm. And could it be, um, it's hard for me to explain this, but part of what you're seeing in the mega trends, I think almost wanting to connect to mythology. It's like, well, what would the gods feel if the gods represent all of these things? And how is that? Well, it's interesting. Like, because I feel like there's a place for mythology to come back. Yeah. Well, I feel like so. I was, I've been obsessed with mythology, Joseph Campbell, all that stuff for years, and I've also been obsessed with mathematics and um, physics and sacred geometry and things like that. And I, I noticed a fun little thing a few weeks ago. I was playing around, and I noticed that the words myth and math are the same, except they have one letter right. different. Um, and I wonder in a way, like, you know, some models of reality when you get way out there into the esoteric stuff are like this kind of uh, fundamental mathematical superstructure of which everything is emerging and we're, we have the illusion of separateness but we're actually all just part of this one thing. And if that is a mathematical superstructure and if that is actually the nature of things, um, then wouldn't the grooves and patterns in that superstructure be the myths, basically? The things that keep happening again and again and Somebody again because there's an equation me. there? <laughs> so maybe, maybe maths are myths and myths are maths. Um, and, then, and then back to the feminine, right? Because yes. a lot of the mythology and the pre-Christian earth goddess things were women-centered and our stories are told differently. And maybe that's where people resonate more with the stories of vulnerability than they do with the stories of conquering. Yeah. Yes. And it's sort of trying to remember how those stories were told so long ago. Mm -hmm. That's such a good point. Yeah, and I, and I think a lot of the, just to go that, a lot of the stories that are myth stories, they have this there are teachable qualities to them. They're not just some entertaining story that's funny or whatever, but there's a reason that they exist. They're, con they're containers for a lesson. All the myths are like that. Um, and I think that's, uh, there's a very, there's a, maybe a feminine quality about that. Like, we're, we're not just doing this for laughs, but we're doing this because there's something to be uh, learned here. Yeah, so many of the stories you guys example today were very personal. I'm curious what your take is on the role of anonymity in storytelling. There's, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Whisper and Secret apps that allow you to just spray whatever you want out there, and even like Snapchat, where you say something and it disappears right away. You know, you're really putting yourself out there in the, in the stories you showed today. Is there a place for anonymity, and is that interesting at all to you guys as storytellers? Yeah. Okay. Okay. We made very different answers. To me, it's, I have no interest. Like, I want people that own up. And the whole, like, people, you know, right, we had to actually turn down, turn off the comments on our YouTube channel because people were just being, like, horribly mean. Like, somebody with their telling, pouring out their heart, it's like, she's fat, and look at like, her ugly shoes. It's just like, it's just so unbelievable. And we were like, we can't. This American Life also had the same thing. Like, they had to turn, we, we ended up, when we, we found out they did it, we were like, yeah. we're just going to do it. It was a huge debate on staff. 
Because there's just something about that. I mean, I think that there's a place for that anonymous. I mean, I actually love Post Secret. My husband's obsessed. We have every book. There's, it's so much fun. Um, it's beautiful. But I feel like what is special to me about the moth is that people are standing up there owning their own feelings, <laughs> owning their own experience, um, which allows any other people to own theirs. But you, you may have a different answer. Well, <laughs> I agree with your observation about online comments. And I, I think yeah. that's there's something about the the formal structure of comments that elicits that type of behavior in human beings. I think if we were in a room and there was a way for you guys to anonymously pass cards to us with your comments, they would not be nearly so nasty. There, there's something about the specific structure of that format. So I, anyway, I don't think anonymity and human anonymity necessarily means people will be nasty. Uh, and actually, I think there's some places where anonymity is really needed. I mean, think of like... Uh, Catholic confessionals, that's like one classic role for anonymity. Um, but I think the motivations are different. I mean, when you're owning your story, yeah, you're, you're owning it and that lets other people own it, and that's, that's wonderful. On the other hand, it introduces this element of uh, like narcissism and, um, and look at me and look how funny or charismatic I am, which is totally not there when you're being anonymous. And so maybe it, it, there's different yeah. motivations in the storyteller. There's also no anti in, 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 in anonymity. You put nothing on the table. And like we had, uh, like for this I believe, we, we turned off comments because we didn't want that phenomenon. But our, our, we would often, the response was you write your own essay. You, yeah. you do your own cowboy. You tell your own law story. That's, that's the response. That's the way to comment. I was curious when you were talking about not editing. You titled this Finding Space for Stories. I feel like editing actually can give a writer more space. Um, like, you know, Ernest Hemingway wouldn't have been Ernest Hemingway without fantastic editing and had different kind of freedom and space because that was going to come back at him. And I was just curious with the editor and the non-editor. Well, we're very, I'm an editor. Uh, and I'm interested in this, these notions of curation and how you bring out the best in people. How, how, not how you change them into what you like necessarily, but how you let their expression blossom in the best possible way. And I think each of you have approached it in different ways. I mean, Jonathan and I were talking about how you, you yeah. could curate, could you group curate it? Could, what, what could you do to give people editorial guidance without changing their voice? Yeah. Right, it's just helping them choose, like a lot of storytelling that we were seeing, like, where does it go wrong when it's too long? And so a lot of us are just helping people pick the best examples of each thing that they're trying to say and to do that with, with economy. I mean, one of the tricks, of, part of why we work with, the, the main reason we work with people at the moth before they get on our main stage is because 10 minutes goes by so fast, so much faster than you ever realize. And, so, and if you can really have just thought it through just a little in advance and really instead of having 15 examples for the one thing, picking the best three, it just really makes the story pop so much more. You know, we always say that we're trying to like pop the arc out while you know cutting out all the clutter. And I've heard you just sort of unofficially edit, and one technique you use, which I think is good, which is not imposing uh, your view, which is just to keep asking questions. Yeah, I think so. We all do. It's just because ultimately we never, we we're never trying to impose what we think the story should be on anybody. It's one of the challenges of our job. It would be so much easier if we were doing that. Yeah, but the way we always say that you. Know, as far as some people ask us about like the truth versus fiction and all of our stories are at least meant to be true we police it the best we can because I think for me I'm just not that interested in working in on in um, fiction and so it's like well, we're going to do there's so much more control over fiction but there's something really challenging and interesting about taking what is and making that 
the most interesting it can be, as opposed to being able to just like write it in the perfect way. And what do you think about curation in some of your contexts? Uh, I, I love it. It's just hard to scale it. So that's the reason it's not really a part of Cabaret. I mean, we've thought about maybe having a way where there can be peer-to-peer -peer editing, where people edit each other. But I don't know that that would necessarily improve quality. Um, but in, in theory, I love it. And you know, uh, obviously, edited stuff is usually better. We've got like a couple more minutes here. Um, just a quick question about age. I used to teach high school. and. Uh, Getting high school to tell her stories was a very powerful thing. And now my mom is 84 and she wants to start telling her stories. What is your age range? Do you have anything about younger people? Or well, both of you have projects. But yeah, we have, there's, um, Calvert actually has a lot of older people using it, mm -hmm. I think, because they have more time and a lot of um, stuff to reflect on. There's fewer younger people, although we did do a project with NPR to capture teenage stories, and we got like a thousand really great stories. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of age agnostic. <laughs> the biggest story of them off in the last couple of years is we launched a high school slam program, and it has been unbelievable. I mean, it sounds like a nightmare. I mean, high school students <laughs> judging each other's stories. It's so unbelievable. Like a kid who no one's ever heard from, who's totally shy, goes up there and wins the slam. I mean, it's just like, it's been really riveting. We're, gonna, we're starting to get a lot of the stories out of the radio and everything, but it's been really, I think, so meaningful to all of us who've been involved in it. And then we're always trying to find older people to tell stories. It's something that we really love. One of our, again, somebody who has been one of our most popular stories for the last few years is this guy, Hector Black, and he's an 89 year old World War II vet, and um, people go crazy for him and his stories. And so we are, we, we, there's a range for years of like the moth of people, audience was usually people between like 50, 30, and 50, and New York City, a little hip. And as we've expanded around, I think that's really changed. The slams, like a lot of young people come to the slams, a lot of people in their 20s. And um, what our current trend that we're so proud of is that we have this thing where teenagers and people in college are bringing their parents to the mall. I think because they wanted to pay for the ticket, but it's also like, look, you see this whole thing, and it just it makes us so happy. Yeah. In public radio, the parents bring the teenagers. <laughs> Maybe one more. Uh, okay. Um, so I was thinking about your what is beyond storytelling. Oh, or I also noticed math, myth, so thinking beyond storytelling and how one of the problems with storytelling is that it ossifies things, and thinking back to your analogy of wound versus scar, and scar is static, but what if you think about or ask for stories about, go back, and how, have you, how, how would, you, would you change the story you tell if you didn't think about it as you, thought, as you had thought about it? In other words, go, I mean, our, our experience of, of life and, and an event that happened in the past often does change over time as we see things differently and invite people to tell the same story. But if it's, you know, how does that story change for you? We've had some of our greatest hits are stories where somebody told a story or some version of it years before, and then something happens that really is kind of the icing on the cake, and they come back to tell it again. The very first story in the moth book is told by Jan Levin, an astrophysicist, and she told us for years before about meeting her husband. He's like this guy in a band who doesn't, I don't think graduated from high school. Here she is, like this Columbia educated astrophysicist. And it, it was a lovely story. I mean, it was beautiful. It was about them meeting, separating, and then bumping into each other completely randomly, and then getting married. And it, it was lovely, but it just didn't quite land. And if Jana were here, I would say this. So we've talked about it. And so we talked about her maybe redoing it because I got to know her. I was like, I think you could just do it a little bit better. And it turned out that over time, since she told the first story, she and Warren had a baby. And there's a whole beautiful thing of 
because she's Jana and she's a physicist, where she talks about, oh, is the universe finite or infinite? So, like, if you put a glove on your left hand and you throw around the universe and come back, would it be on your right? I'm sorry if I'm massacring this concept, but anyway, like, I, I failed astronomy in college. I <laughs> only course I got to see it. Anyway, so she, um, but so it turns out that she and Warren had had a baby, and their little boy has this extremely rare condition where all of his organs are on the opposite side. It's so rare that when he was born in the London hospital, there was no doctor there who'd ever seen it in their lifetime. And so all of a sudden, there was just this insanely unbelievable, like, if you put it in a movie, nobody would believe it, but that's so corny and annoying. But this actually happened, so she came back and retold it, and it's like, now, just, it's one of my favorite monsters of all time. I want to thank you both. It's great. Thank you.